Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thanks for tuning in as always and hopefully you're enjoying the show and the variety of eye and ear opening guests that we bring to you on a regular basis. As regular listeners will know, we're currently free, completely non-profit and intend to stay that way. We're available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes and our listenership is increasing all the time as are the costs associated with bringing you the show. To that end, we have a donate button on our page and all donations are gratefully accepted. There's no fixed cost on those donations so anything you can spare at all is greatly appreciated. In response to so many of your emails, we've also added a subscription button which you can use to donate on a monthly basis without actually having to physically do it and you can also use your credit card there as well so thank you for all the help you can also check out our twitter account at alchemy radio so get following and interacting with us with all your feedback guest suggestions and other input we're on facebook as well so you'll find us there too so on to the show our guest this week is dennis wise a filmmaker from the uk who has really got a lot of people's juices flowing with a documentary titled adolf hitler the greatest story never told It approaches the history of World War II and in particular Adolf Hitler from what is most certainly a unique perspective and one that's rarely examined in the history books. Dennis, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are things? Things are fine. It's great to be here. I've visited Ireland uh, quite a while back now, but a beautiful country. I travelled from the south to the north. Uh, Stunning, stunning scenery and always great to to speak to uh, people from over in Ireland. Well, I think we're going to have a fascinating conversation. A lot of the information that you'll be presenting will be extremely new to a lot of people. And I remember when I first saw the documentary Adolf Hitler, The Greatest Story Never Told, I was so awestruck by it. I mean, it's it's done so well, it's produced so well and presented so well, but the information contained therein is so... Well, I don't, it's shocking to a lot of people. A lot of it was shocking to me as well, and I consider myself a, a very open-minded person. And I think people who do delve into it for the first time, particularly those who are entrenched, as so many of us are for so much of our lives, in the mainstream view of things, they'll, quite often, it's so paradigm-shattering, they'll reject a lot of the information and they'll have, I suppose, a negative reaction to it. And we will discuss that as we go in-depth into the interview. But before we do, for those who mightn't be familiar with yourself or with the documentary, tell us a little bit about it. I suppose a brief synopsis of The Greatest Story Never Told and how you reached some of the conclusions that you came to that led you to make this documentary. Well, first of all, uh, if it wasn't for the internet, uh, the documentary uh, would have been impossible. Uh, but uh, to start the story off, uh, I came off from school one day, probably around about the age of uh, 10 to 12, I asked my father why Adolf Hitler had, had uh, committed all these atrocities and etc. Uh, because my father had fought on the side of the Axis, uh, the side of Germany. Uh, and he sat me down, and I, I can actually remember the look on his face when I asked him the question. I'll never forget the look. It, it was kind of a, a mixture of, of shock and, uh, and hurt, to be quite honest. And when he told me the story, I always remember it. Uh, and uh, when I finally got the chance, I felt that I could I could put it together with a documentary uh, into a documentary with the help of the internet. I decided to do it because a lot of the things, uh, if you understand the documentary uh, about the robot, uh, you'll realise that it is the key to opening the door uh, for events today and and why. And I think that's absolutely key, Dennis, to what's going on in the documentary as well. Because far from being just a revisionist type affair. 
it goes into such depth as to the origins of Adolf Hitler, um, a lot about, I suppose, his personal life and why he became the man that he did, which we never really hear about, and why Germany found itself in the state that it did that led to the rise of National Socialism. So I think um, it's probably prudent of us now to have a look at the early life of Hitler, and I think as the interview progresses and as we have our chat, We'll take it in chronological order and we'll talk about Hitler and we'll then talk about the rise of National Socialism in Germany and how it led to World War II. And we'll take the angle that you're taking in the documentary, if you're comfortable with that. It's fine, yes, it's fine. Great, so how did Hitler become the person he did, this, this horrible megalomanic uh, killer of so many millions of people? Well, basically, uh, if you look at uh, when he was actually... A, a struggling artist or trying to be an artist to try and get into our college uh, and eventually didn't make that. Uh, he actually spent three years in a in a hostel for the down and outs. Uh, and it's an incredible story of, of, of a rise of somebody so low down to, you know, uh, to, to, to rise to a point where he's practically the leader of all of Europe, uh, whether, you know, people like him or not, that you've got to accept that he's a one amazing rise. But uh, at that particular time, uh, after the three years in the hostel, World War I broke out. Uh, and uh, being the, the nationalist he was, uh, even though he was Austrian, he always considered himself German, uh, he immediately signed up for, for World War I. Uh, and again, we were t well, I was certainly taught at school that uh, although he received some medals, there was not really uh, of, of any great uh, worth. Or there was handed out like confetti, which was completely wrong again. And it was just a, a, a campaign to demonise or kind of uh, denounce his actions. But he was a, a World War hero uh, for Germany, without a doubt. He won uh, a second-class Iron Cross and a first-class Iron Cross and, uh, and numerous other medals. So uh, when, when the war ended... Uh, he was of the opinion that uh, Germany had been stabbed in the back, and certainly the documentary explains uh, this is true and, and, and how. Uh, so when he left the army and he, he came out uh, onto the streets of, uh, of Munich, he's, he's the town where he resided, uh, there was a, a concerted attempt by the communist element to take over the, over the country. There were six million communists uh, in Germany at that time and uh, Adolf Hitler eventually joined the National Socialist Party as the 55th member. So from uh, you know a handful of handful of members which met in a in a bar they would rise within 10 years to be the uh, country's government. But at that time uh, uh, he had a struggle because obviously all his uh, his meetings were infiltrated by communists, uh, fights would break out. In fact, there was over 500 National Socialists was killed uh, in total in them early years. Uh, so brutal was the fighting. Um, but sure, uh, the stab in the back, which he always used to uh, uh, go on about, was, was the fact that uh, the Zionists uh, in, uh, in Germany had offered a deal to Britain who was actually losing the war at that, that point uh, and offered the deal to, to bring in the, uh, the US if they could uh, negotiate a deal and have Palestine, uh, which the British agreed to uh, and that is known as the, the Balfour 
documents. Whereas uh, the British promised Palestine to the uh, Israeli, well, to the uh, Jewish Zionists of Germany, and they got into the contacts in America, and they finally brought America into World War One, uh, which then defeated Germany. Uh, Germany was then uh, blamed for starting World War One, when plainly uh, it was uh, the uh, Austria which which declared war on Serbia after uh, Prince Ferdinand had been uh, murdered. Germany uh, went to help Austria as an ally uh, only after other countries had gone to help Serbia. But as we say, Germany was blamed for starting World War I and then with the Treaty of Versailles, they was uh, treated to a horrendous, horrendous uh, document which, which I believe there was something like 440 uh, parts of the document and 400 of, of this document was to punish Germany. Uh, and indeed it did, and Germany suffered badly over the next uh, decade. And it is quite amazing, Dennis, because I think the uh, the state that Germany was left in after the Treaty of Versailles really is what prepared the atmosphere in that country for the rise of something new and something that was perceived by many to be radical and the antithesis of what came before, because clearly what came before hadn't worked in the interests of Germany. That, that's right. In fact, after World War I, uh, the, the Weimar Republic was formed. Um, and again, you know, went against all nationalist uh, interests. Uh, at, at one point, Germany uh, struggled to pay back the, rep the horrendous reparations uh, for starting, in quotes, uh, inverted commas, World War I. Uh, and even France at one point went into the Rhineland uh, and said, if Germany won't pay us, we'll go in there and take it. And, and the French troops went in and occupied the Rhineland. Uh, and with the restrictions of, uh, there was only allowed 100,000 for an army, uh, and uh, no navy and no air force, there was very little that uh, Germany could do. Uh, and just to add to that, with all the uh, communist activity going on in Europe at that time, uh, and especially with the Soviet Union, quite close by, a hundred thousand army would hardly defend one of the major cities, never mind the country itself. Mm. But that's another story for, for now, for sure. Uh, they was in a difficult position. Uh, people were, were, were starving. Uh, they, they would eat rats. They, uh, just a terrible situation. Begs, beggars on the streets. Uh, and, of, and of course, we, we had the decadence of the Weimar Republic as well, where, where in Berlin uh, you had the sex shows and the prostitutes and uh, the children being sold and the paedophilia. Just uh, a decadent society which was rapidly going downhill uh, to one car crash. Things changed radically then once the National Socialist Party began to take a hold. How initially did Hitler and his uh, contemporaries and colleagues managed to make that step from, I mean, he was member number 55 of the party, from 55 individuals to becoming the governing party in, in the country in such a short, a dramatically short space of time. Yeah, I mean, uh, he came to power in 1933, but uh, up to then he was considered uh, a joke. A lot of people would just think he was just uh, a bit of a nutcase uh, and never really took him seriously. But uh, he, he came with a set of promises. He was asked. He asked uh, the German public to give him at least four years, uh, and uh, and he would sort out this horrendous unemployment. Uh, 
and horrendous situation that we've just been talking about of poverty and and uh, and beggars and starvation on a whole. When he got to power in 1933, to the shock of everybody else, uh, it sorted it within three years. Unemployment had, had dropped. Six million jobs had been found, and all this at a time when the world recession was still on. We, you know, we mustn't forget that as well because uh, America was struggling. Most countries in the world were struggling, but by by entering 1933, by 1936, they were capable of holding Olympic Games, and, and uh, such such was the the money that they managed to save by doing certain things. And again, this relates to the bankers today. Uh, he managed to get the country back on its feet, and not only that, but thriving. Uh, an incredible achievement, which again, uh, people and have uh, said, and, and I've, I've been taught that uh, he didn't really do much to do it. The previous government's policies were coming into play, but there's plenty of evidence, especially from the likes of Lloyd George, who was who visited Hitler in '36, who uh, who came back and, and, and did news, newspaper articles uh, for the Express, etc., acclaiming this this great man in in, in Germany. Many people who would only have been exposed, I suppose, to one side of history, that being the, the Allied winning side post-World War II, would argue that, well, the only reason Hitler managed to employ everybody was because he wanted to build up this massive army that would take over the world. So it was all to do with the war machine, and that's how people went back to work. How would you address that, Dennis? Certainly, uh, he, did, he did build up the armament side, but, but as I've just uh, said to you, no leader in his right mind... Uh, would be happy with a hundred thousand army yeah. and no navy, you know, because just for the defence of your own country. Uh, and uh, to be quite honest, uh, if he can be accused of anything, he's totally guilty of trying to break that Treaty of Versailles, and he did everything in his power to break it. And that was one of the things. What he totally ignored. Uh, he, he just felt his country needed defending. Uh, and it needed an army, and uh, certainly an air force and the navy, because of this this huge communist threat in Europe at the time. Uh, it, obviously, you know, Stalin had, had, had taken the Ukraine and and the history of the Ukraine, which was hidden again for a long time, with the starvation of, of the people for the under the Bolshevik rules, where uh, they took all the the foods and moved them all onto collective farming and. Great, a great stress in in, uh, in in the Ukraine, and Hitler always always felt that this was heading his way. So that's one reason I would say why he built up his armaments. Again, uh, but it wasn't just that. He had the uh, the labour force was uh, put to work by building motorways, for instance. And these these motorways uh, all across Germany, and uh, at certain points. Uh, they would have uh, places for the workers to stay all week and work on the motorway and then at the weekend they would go back home to the families with real money in their pockets and as soon as they put the money on the table then the wives would go out and buy the necessities, the foods, the clothes and everything else and so in this way it got the economy moving uh, to such an extent that by 1936 you know, Germany was actually thriving thriving in an unprecedented way. I mean, it was literally the boom country on the planet at the time. Well, there's never been a, an economic recovery ever from that depth of uh, depravity and, and uh, 
you know, everybody was, I mean, there was something like 200,000 suicides the year before uh, it came to power, which is kind of like the whole country was in a terrible state. Mm. And, and, and to come to rise to the heights that it did by 36 was unprecedented. Uh, but there was other factors as well. Uh, and, and like I said, it, it, this comes to play with today where uh, he had to, he had to re remove uh, the system of usury, which the Jewish money and to be paid back in interest, which at one point in Europe, fifteen uh, hundreds and that was was illegal, uh, but uh, people were trapped in in debt. So he, he he removed Jews from prominent positions of the banks, uh, and the government took over uh, the handling of the finances, and the speed that he recovered does make you wonder how much these banks really do make. And of course, we've spoken on this show many times about usury and the evils of usury because it is a system which I suppose is a form of enslavement, um, economic yeah. or financial enslavement. And those regimes in the past that have abandoned usury have tended to thrive if managed in the correct way. And I think it's one of the reasons that if you look at uh, contemporary politics and imperialism and most notably the United States, any country now that is in any kind of position of power or that has a big population or is doing well and decides usury isn't for us or the petrodollar isn't for us, they tend to meet a very sticky end and that's for a reason and Hitler just didn't want any part of that because he had seen the ills that it had brought to his country up to then. Am I correct in that summation? Totally correct, yeah, and, and, and this is, he's, he's never given credit for that because uh, as soon as he got rid of that system... Uh the country benefited. I mean, it's just it's just a fact that took everybody out of debt, uh, and 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 the and the mark or you know the pound in your hand was worth what it was worth. And these days, you know, uh, America is suffering from the same thing with the central bank, Federal Reserve. You know, the, the first thing they did when they uh, when they moved into Syria, uh, sorry, in, in, into Libya, it was the, they put a central bank in, and this is Europe is controlled by the central bank system. Uh, which is which holds everybody, uh, as Greece does at the moment, you know, in in vice, and and the only country really to uh, step out of that is Iceland. Uh, Iceland uh, decided to pull out of the uh, European Community, uh, and again within a couple of years, they're 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 fine. They're they're, they're out and they're not under this uh, this clasp of iron from uh, Europe. So, Dennis, at this point, we have Adolf Hitler firmly established as the leader of the German Third Reich, and. I think, no doubt about it, the most popular leader that we have ever seen in, uh, in modern-day global history. How much of that was to do with his own personal charisma? Because we have, I suppose, an environment that's very different to the political environment that we see now, where a campaign is so glossy and you've got television, you, you've, you've all these teams of um, propagandists in the hidden sense around you. So we take, say, an, a Barack Obama campaign or a George Bush campaign. It was very different for Hitler. They didn't have TV, didn't have internet, nothing like that. So... Uh, how much of it was down to the strength of the man as an orator and how he could control a crowd with just his voice? Yeah, uh, this is this is a question I'm often asked. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the answers I usually give is, uh, if you can imagine uh, the National Socialist Party in this uh, environment of a, probably a, a, a bar where they all used to meet, and like I said, he was the 55th member, uh, 
and he, and he took that party to the highest of power. Now imagine that if Hitler never joined that party, I do believe that that party would still be in that bar today, uh, dreaming of what could be. Uh, this was the this immense charisma and uh, organisation skills that uh, and his drive to uh, and his love for his country as well. Uh, you know, uh, all this combined and this terrific. Uh, it's, the way he could handle a crowd and uh, motivate people was just just unreal. And uh, m many people uh, thought what he had was kind of a gift from God. Uh, so, so powerful was it. And it's interesting you say that and you mention God because many people would accuse Hitler of having a messiah complex and would accuse then the German populace of worshipping him in a messianic way. Is that a fair accusation or is it just, I suppose, a byproduct of people seeing these massively powerful speeches at things like the Nuremberg rallies and places like that? And because it's something that we don't see today because of television and the internet or whatever, you don't get these huge groups of people gathering in that way and it just seems so alien. Would that be a factor or do you think it was a problem for the German national collective mentality in that they saw this guy as their saviour who had taken their country as a phoenix from the flames and they'd risen from the ashes and he was their god. What's your angular position on that, Dennis? Well, the thing is at that time, because of the dire straits of the country, the, the, the actual population was praying for a messiah. Uh, and on every street corner, they'd be hoping the messiah would be there. Uh, and so no doubt Hitler came into this category when he first started giving his, his speeches, etc. Uh, but I mean, if I could just quote you from uh, a newspaper article from uh, what Lloyd George, who in 1936 visited Hitler, uh, and he came back and did a little bit of, a, of a, an article for the Express. If I could just read you his opinion of what you're asking, uh, he's, he's probably answering better than I could. He says here, affection is quite an inadequate word to describe the attitude of German people towards Hitler. It amounts to almost worship. I have never uh, seen anything like it. Some men I met who were not Nazis told me that they did not know what the country would have done without him. They are inclined to blame Hitler's supporters for some of the things which uh, they did not approve, but there was no whisper of criticism of Hitler. It is just like our motto, the king can do no wrong. So even Lloyd George is, is, is thoroughly impressed with the way that uh, people, people just flock into his, to his, uh, his meetings and his speeches. Lloyd George, of course, being the former British Prime Minister. Who, who was involved in the Treaty of Versailles. There you go. And I mean, that speaks volumes in itself. So was there any dissent? How, how accurate in terms of the perceived absence of any dissent or opposing voice that Lloyd, Lloyd George picked up on there? How accurate was that as we go to, uh, just, just say, before World War II breaks out? Was that really the case or was it that there was a silencing of opposition voices? Well, in every country, you're going to have opposition, you know, and without a doubt, no, nobody's going to, everybody's not going to agree with you. Mm. And, and, and there were certain people at that time who will be classified as enemies of the state. Uh, no difference in America, no difference in, in Britain. Uh, and, and so, obviously, there, there were people who, who uh, the National Socialists thought were a bad influence uh, on society as a whole, and they would uh, take them to these camps and uh, re-educate them. So certainly, you know, one can't deny that there was a persecution of an element of this society who they felt were enemy states. Uh, and obviously, 
uh, communism was a big thing and a lot of Jews were communists. Uh, communism uh, in Russia was uh, a, a Jewish revolution, uh, no doubt about it. And your Trotsky and Lenin were both Jews, so it's got a heavy Jewish influence. And so a lot of Jews were put into these camps. Uh, a lot of communists uh, and uh, social democrats as well. Uh, so yeah, uh, there was an element of a persecution on a, a certain part of society, but a lot of it has been exaggerated as well. And I think that tends to be the case, I suppose, within any society too. So. Sure. We're, we're on the, the cusp of World War II. Um, we have Germany and it's, it has risen from the flames and it's an economic power and the people are happy by and large and everything seems rosy in the garden. So how does World War II break out or how does it come about? What happens there? Well, again, we have to go back to the Treaty of Versailles. Um, one of the uh, things about the Treaty of Versailles was the breakup of, of parts of Germany. Uh, there was a land taken to form Czechoslovakia. Um, the Rhineland was occupied, uh, and there was parts of uh, Germany which uh, was was taken and uh, was was in Poland. Uh, and even a section East Prussia was was cut off from uh, Germany itself. Uh, and there was a little bit of conflict over that. But the, the, the problem started really with Czechoslovakia in 1938, when uh, ethnic Germans, and this isn't recorded in, in, in many history books in, uh, in the West, but uh, the ethnic Germans were being persecuted uh, in Czechoslovakia. Hitler being the type of person he was, in fact, most leaders who, who feel that uh, their, their nationals are being picked on. Uh, for instance, if America started to, to beat, uh, sorry, if Mexico started to beat up Americans and, and uh, murders and rapes, I'm quite sure it wouldn't take long for America to be involved. So that was a situation with Germany, but Hitler actually, and few people again know this, but Hitler actually called the meeting because he didn't want to declare war. He threatened to declare war on, on Czechoslovakia, mm. but uh, he, he actually called for the Munich meeting, which, which involved uh, Britain and, and France and Italy, uh, and come together, and they finally come to an agreement where uh, the German part of Czechoslovakia will be handed back and so the ethnic Germans would then once more join the Reich. That was fine. Uh, obviously, uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain got criticised for it, which annoyed Hitler as well at the time because he, he felt that, you know, uh, Chamberlain had bent over backwards and, and he was quite pleased with the outcome and, and was annoyed at the criticism that Chamberlain was getting back home. Uh, he would call them warmongers and, and he had this sense of... Uh, there was, there's people trying to stir things up since 1933 when uh, international jury actually declared war on Germany when Italy came to power and, and, and put a blockade worldwide uh, on, on Germany trading. But uh, as we say, Germany still thrived. Uh, but then in 1939, the year after the Czechoslovakian crisis, there came the Polish crisis. And again, very few people know about uh, the situation there where... Uh, Ethnic Germans in Poland were now uh, having problems. It was not only that, though, it was the fact that Hitler wanted uh, a, some kind of a, a, a link to East Prussia, where, uh, like a railway line, which, which was refused because of East Prussia being cut off. And also Poland was uh, making claims to Danzig, 
and uh, Hitler was adamant that that was a German city of German culture, and no way would that fall under uh, any Polish rule. So you had three three reasons there, but the, the the pressure really came on when the ethnic Germans were were, were driven from from the homes, and uh, at one point uh, there was eighty thousand refugees on the German border. Eventually, there was one point two million uh, on the border, uh, and Hitler warned. Uh, France and England, who had warned Germany if they'd attack Poland, they would declare war on Germany. And he warned, uh, the, as he calls them, the democratic states, this situation cannot go on forever. Uh, so, in what many people would call a, a masterstroke, he, he did a deal with Stalin, his, uh, his arch rival. Because uh, he felt if he could do a deal with Stalin, he could then... Uh, invade Poland, relieve the ethnic Germans of the pain, what was going on, uh, because he didn't feel that uh, there would be a country would attack both Germany and the Soviet Union, because he had promised the eastern part of Poland to Stalin, mm. and he, he just felt safe then to go in and do what he had to do. Uh, consequently, France and Germany declared war on Germany, but not on the Soviet Union. Stalin is almost ignored when it comes to, I find, and I've certainly found in my study of World War II, well, obviously he's, he's a big player in the whole thing. When it comes to what was going on inside his country, he's almost ignored. People speak about Hitler and what happened, but Stalin, of course, was one of the three allies and, and the main allied powers, particularly at the start. And a lot of people overlook where he came from and what the story was behind him in favour of just focusing on Germany and Adolf Hitler all the time. So I think it's probably good if we have a little look at Stalin before we get into the nitty gritty of World War II because it's, it's certainly going to help us in terms of understanding what's to come later if we understand Stalin's position and what he was actually like. And you've gone into quite a lot of detail in that on the documentary and a huge amount of it is very, very eye-opening. Sure, uh, and again, as you say, there's not a lot of uh, uh, this kind of history being taught in, in, in the schools in the West. But certainly, uh, you're looking at Stalin and uh, <laughs> a bank robber, actually a bank robber, what, what actually came to run a country. Uh, so uh, a, a criminal in every sense of the word, uh, he would get rid of his rivals. His biggest rival was Trotsky uh, after, after Lenin had died, he, uh, he, banned, uh, he banished Trotsky and then uh, eventually had him assassinated. Uh, this, was, this was the kind of guy who was, uh, his answer to every problem was to kill. Uh, and had a huge record of, of doing this on a mass scale, uh, which was not unknown to the rest of Europe. And I'm quite sure not unknown to the US and not unknown to the UK. But uh, Stalin uh, came to power and carried on the, uh, the Bolshevik regime, which Lenin had, uh, had led, uh, and it's one of the most horrendous regi regimes in world history, with uh, deaths in the 40 million plus. It's just astonishing, 40 million plus, the amount of Russians who were killed by Stalin and the Stalinist regime eclipses pretty much anything in human history. Yeah, there, it is the most horrendous thing. It, it, it makes Genghis Khan look saintly. Uh, and this was threatening Europe uh, because there had been some banter between 
Germany and, and Russia, you know, on the radios and things. There's always bits of threats going on. Mm. And, of course, the Spanish Civil War, when uh, there was a, a, a communist, uh, fascist war, uh, and Hitler had to send over uh, aeroplanes for Franco, who had the, uh, the main army over in, in Africa, but couldn't get back to Spain. So Hitler actually sent the Luftwaffe and uh, transported Franco's army back into Spain and turned the tide of the war away from the communists till eventually they, they were defeated. And obviously Stalin had, had supplied arms and things for, for the communists. Uh, so that must have rankled Stalin as well at one point, the fact that uh, Germany had helped Spain uh, defeat them. So uh, there was history between them. And uh, as we find out, uh, payback was going to come. Indeed, and World War Two breaks out, and of course the deal has been done between Hitler and Stalin. So the early stages of the war, how did Central Europeans in particular take to the advancing uh, German troops? Because that's something that tends to be kind of glossed over quite a lot in the history books, I find. Well, that's, that's right. Well, he invaded Poland and uh, the war was over within, within three weeks. And then there was a bit of a spell where he calls it like the silent war, where... Uh, nothing really happened from France and the UK uh, for a, a number of weeks and, and, and the offer from Germany uh, to these colonial powers and people tend to forget uh, at that time Britain ruled 400 million around the world and, and France ruled quite a number as well so together they probably ruled three quarters of the world themselves Yeah. Uh, so th there, was, there was peace offerings to uh, the UK uh, one of them was uh, Hitler was prepared to give back all the land that, that Poland that he had seized, but he, but he would keep the land what was stolen from, from Germany at the Treaty of Versailles uh, and, and keep the ethnic Germans within the Reich. All this was turned down uh, to the point eventually when France started to mobilise, uh, and, and as did Britain. Uh, they replaced Chamberlain with, with Churchill and started pouring troops into Europe to a point where Hitler had no, no other choice but to be ready for war. Uh, and so when uh, France and the UK finally started to you know, uh, attack Germany, he, 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 the thing what Hitler always did was uh, he, he always took the fight away from Germany uh, and, and he would strike first, just as uh, some, some people in an argument like one person will strike first for fear of getting struck uh, before. Mm. So, uh, when, when Churchill was uh, made um, put in charge of the army, uh, he, he invaded uh, through Belgium. And people say, well, why, why did he invade through Belgium? Simply because they were going to attack Germany through Belgium. So as, as they were moving towards Germany, his forces, and these were, this, this was a different kind of war from World War I, when they were, they were trapped in the trenches for five years. This was a fast-moving <coughs> blitzkrieg, mm. uh, which was totally new warfare, uh, totally offensive, and outmaneuvered the French and the British, and to the point where they were, France was conquered and, and the British was trapped at Dunkirk. Now, many people think, uh, by the fact that they didn't align, uh, annihilate the British troops at Dunkirk, uh, many historians feel like that it was offer a peace again from Hitler, because uh, he waited two days, and they managed to get them off the beach. In, although humiliated, the British Empire was going back to Britain. 
in, uh, in fishing boats. But it certainly is the case, Dennis, that Hitler could have gone into Dunkirk and annihilated the British forces there. All over the backs of the seas, uh, and he could have, he could have, literally obliterated everybody on that beach. But uh, again, the feeling is that he has. He had a liking for England, and this is mentioned in the documentary as well, as does uh, Lloyd George in, in, in this particular article, where, uh, if, if I can just read you this quickly, uh, he, he says here, uh, one of the foremost impressions which I derived from my visit, this is Lloyd George to, to Germany, was the universal desire to remain on terms of the closest friendship with Great Britain. I found that among everyone I met, from Hitler down to the working men with whom I spoke, Everywhere, Britain is held in the deepest respect and there is a profound desire that the tragic circumstances of 1914 should never be repeated. Now, this is Lloyd George talking again. So you, you can see Hitler, uh, although was wary of the communist Soviet Union, did not want to get into a war with Britain or France, forced into that war, and by winning that particular war, took France and totally destroyed the uh, Treaty of Ver Versailles then, uh, and, and Britain retreated without all their arms and all the heavy artillery uh, across the Channel. And again, the Battle of Britain is another, uh, another interesting point to note on that topic, because the accepted view is that, well, Hitler was point-blank defeated in the Battle of Britain, and he tried to annihilate Britain from the air, and it just didn't work for him. But there is another side to that story, which you touch on as well in the documentary, which is very, very rarely heard. And I certainly hadn't heard of it until I saw the documentary and then went digging afterwards. Yeah, well, uh, all this time you've got to remember that, that, that Hitler had, had one eye on, on, on the Soviet Union. Uh, Goering said to Hitler, look, you know, we can, we can uh, keep him under wraps, you know, if, if we use the Luftwaffe, we can, we can probably uh, defeat Britain that way. But uh, in the history of warfare, there's never been airstrikes, there's never been enough. You've always got to put uh, troops on the ground. Uh, Hitler didn't really want to invade Britain, this is obvious. Uh, he, he may have made plans uh, to fool Stalin that he was going to do, but uh, certainly the Luftwaffe was used to, uh, uh, to bomb industrial targets. But then Churchill was bombing civilians and, and, and uh, Hitler, as he says in his speech, uh, put up with it for three months hoping that people would come to the senses. Uh, but Churchill never did. He, uh, they, they deliberately targeted uh, civilian targets. Uh, and so Hitler had to change his tactics. But it wasn't a th he wasn't willing. It was more that he, he just had to do that. Um, now all this time uh, this was going on, it was a half-hearted attack. I mean, when you look what he uh, sent into the Soviet Union, it really was a half-hearted attack. And, and I remember the great Bruce Lee once said that the worst thing uh, that you could possibly do is a half-hearted attack. And, and it certainly turned out that way, where uh, the Battle of Britain just petered out and he had to concentrate all his forces onto the Soviet Union, while Churchill, knowing full well he couldn't defeat Germany himself, went then to the USA searching for uh, help and um, financial aid which he eventually got from Roosevelt. But meanwhile, Stalin, this has come out now in the archives since uh, communism fell in the 90s, uh, where, where Stalin was uh, looking at the state of Europe and with the uh, defensive action that Hitler had to take when he was defeating France and the UK in Europe, there was, uh, one or two governments had fallen 
meanwhile, and, and, and Europe was, was open to an attack right at that time. So uh, coming out of these uh, archives uh, in the, in the uh, in Soviet Union in the 80s, we find that Stalin was going to invade uh, Europe uh, under the name of uh, Operation Thunder, uh, and Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, and this is all shown in the documentary, with three weeks to spare. And this is the reason when uh, they did go into the Soviet Union, sent three million troops into the Soviet Union with Gazi's with us on, on, on the buckle, uh, because it, it, it was Christianity against communism. Uh, Germany being a Christian country with a half Protestant uh, and a half Catholic uh, population, and uh, the atheistic uh, communists who uh, don't believe in God. So uh, he sent these troops in, and within a matter of weeks was rounding up in biblical proportions hundreds of thousands of troops what were there on the border ready to invade Europe. And I think it's very important to note at this point as well, it's often, I suppose, the, the accusation is thrown around and there is a lot of evidence to back it up if you look um, merely on the surface that the Third Reich and the Nazi regime was merely an imperialist, uh, power-grabbing and power-hungry nation led by the dictator Adolf Hitler. But when one looks at preemptive attacks in this period of history, as opposed to, for example, now where we have the US and their supposed preemptive policy of attacking nations um, under the banner of the war on terror, and these are nations that will never pose any threat to, to US national security, it's a very different thing. And it's amazing how, how language can, I suppose, be, uh, be changed over the course of history, because at the time... Germany was very well aware of the threat being posed on all sides to the nation and it all started with the Treaty of Versailles and the battering that they received there. So a preemptive attack from Germany wasn't necessarily, and I'm not saying it was or it wasn't, and maybe you'll discuss that, but it wasn't necessarily that Hitler was out to grab power in these lands because he was open to giving lands back and it was about the Germanic people for him as opposed to taking over the world as so many of us are led to believe. Yeah, that, 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 that is the uh, overriding uh, propaganda that, that uh, he wanted to conquer the world. And, and this is uh, the demonization of Hitler so that uh, troops in the UK and troops in the US actually did believe they were going over to, to, to get rid of a monster. Mm. There's no doubt about it. But the fact is, if you look at history, Stalin was definitely moving west. It invaded Finland. Uh, there was a war going on there. It had uh, taken Moldova from Romania. Uh, and, and other countries felt under threat and actually asked Germany for protection uh, because Germany at that, that time was the only army capable of taking Stalin on. So uh, everything again is in this documentary and it, and it shows footage and, and, it, and documents to back it all up uh, but the fact is that he was never out to conquer the world, he was out to destroy this Treaty of Versailles and he was out to, to make life better for, for the Germanic people. Uh, and even, even the racism of, uh, of Germany has been outlandishly uh, lied about. Because uh, when you look at uh, the facts, there was, there was uh, non-whites fought for Hitler. Uh, and probably uh, the SS is the most multicultural army Europe's ever seen since the Roman days, where uh, you had... Uh, Slavs, you had uh, 
Russians themselves, uh, Asians, Japan was fighting with them, you've got people uh, from India fighting with them. Uh, so, and these fought side by side with German soldiers. Where at, at that, that time, I point out that although uh, the UK and, and, and the US were calling Hitler a, a racist, uh, you look at their own history, or not even history at that time, that the present time where in America, uh, blacks were being hung uh, and burnt uh, to, to death. Uh, well, the racism card, how, how they could ever use that, uh, amazes me. And even the UK, around the world, when they uh, built their empire, with the drugging of China and the uh, the work in India that they did, you know, uh, a lot of people felt that uh, the British were, 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 were quite racist in the building of the empire, which, which, which they were. So uh, a lot of propaganda went on uh, to get these troops to uh, believe that they were fighting for the cause. When all this time, it was actually a war against communism and Christianity. And UK and the US were big players where they just only entered the, end, uh, the, the war at the back end. The main war was the Soviet Union and, and the threat to the world they, they were. That's a very, very interesting viewpoint. And as you say, that's not really something that can be disputed when one looks at the actual historical records and the documentation that is now freely available to us. Because it was the case, so, so much of this documentation gets uh, put in secret archives and is then, for a period of time, made unavailable to the public until such a time, quite often, as the public don't care anymore. So it could be 50 years later that documents emerge. And it's very rare that the historical perception changes as a result of that. People kind of, well, it's not relevant anymore, we'll gloss it aside. And a huge amount of that has gone on with regard to the perception of what happened in World War II. And the history books certainly haven't been rewritten in that regard. Um, I think one possible example of that would be um, the, the Kachin massacre, where the Polish nationals were executed. Tell us a little bit about that, because you go into it in some detail, and it's, it's quite important with regard to framing a lot of the propaganda that came out post-World War II. Well, Stalin, Stalin was an, an, an expert at, at propaganda uh, and his um, advisors. Uh, and as the, the Bolsheviks moved across Europe and they entered Poland, uh, you've got to remember that the, the Polish government uh, at the time when, when Hitler invaded, uh, they, they moved over to England. So they, they, they were based in England and, and, and Churchill had promised to give them the country back. But as, as Stalin, uh, once, once the German forces are in retreat, Stalin is, is obviously moving west. Uh, and as he enters Poland, uh, they take out something like 20,000 of the army officers. Uh, just so that, you know, there's no real leadership in Poland. Once you, once you take out this kind of leadership, it's very hard then for... Uh, Soviet Union to get any any kind of resistance, but they blamed that on Germany, uh, and at the time uh, the Allies, Roosevelt and Churchill, uh, believed Stalin. Whereas evidence has come out now that uh, Roosevelt actually knew, and Churchill would have known as well, but decided to ignore it because they wanted rid of uh, Germany, Hitler and National Socialism and they're quite prepared to put up with whatever Stalin was, was going to do uh, as, it, as it turned out so uh, the point being Katyn is just one massacre 
There's uh, quite a few massacres the Germans would be blamed for. But over the period of the war, there was something like uh, six million German and Axis uh, soldiers taken prisoner. Three, three million of them were probably German, and three million uh, German uniforms, I am convinced, would have been put to good use. Because there's a lot of propaganda up on YouTube, and, uh, you know, uh, Stalin, it's proven that Stalin was quite prepared to not only dress up his soldiers as, as Germans, but dressed up his soldiers as Polish. Because when uh, the Russians uh, went into Warsaw, many of them soldiers, what the Polish crowd were waving, were Russian soldiers. And that, again, is explained and shown in the documentary. And I think uh, some of the relevance of the Katyn massacre in particular is borne out at the Nuremberg trials post-World War II as well, because uh, th that massacre was held up as, as an example of atrocities by the Nazis, when in actual fact they didn't commit this particular one at all. No, that, that, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, and there's one or two things at Nuremberg, uh, which we'll, no doubt will come to at some stage here, that uh, shows exactly that it was a kangaroo court and, uh, and, and it was a sham. But like I said, we can come to that later on. But uh, the Katyn massacre uh, was, I think, uh, probably around, around about the uh, 1990s, late 1990s, when it, it, it all came out. Uh, but the one thing that they never did say was, uh, or announced publicly, was that Adolf Hitler was, was exonerated from it. They just said that uh, the Soviets had done it and left it at that. And another point that I think is worth bringing up is, and you touched on it earlier on, it's certainly gone into in-depth, as everything is in the documentary, <laughs> um, with regard to the attitudes of some of the nations that were on the fringes, I suppose, of World War II, countries such as, for example, Croatia or Sweden, it's quite often overlooked that there was a lot of cooperation with the Third Reich from other countries around Europe right throughout the war. It wasn't just a case of, oh... Uh, Mussolini and Hitler combining and then getting Japan on board and let's fight the rest of the world, was it? No, that's, that's right. Uh, it's, 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 this, uh, it's, it's this threat of communism, because even down in the Balkans uh, with, with, with Serbia, uh, which, which was like a, an ally to the Soviet Union, uh, the Croatians had, had had 900 years of, of being ruled by them. Uh, and so they, they, even today they look at Hitler as kind of a liberator because he... Uh, gave the uh, Croatian government or the uh, Ustasha a chance to for, for, for home rule uh, which they, they gladly took and, and, and fought on, on, on the side of Germany against the Bolsheviks which uh, and, and, and the Serbian partisans which were obviously a threat to themselves so it, it, it is this which is swept under the carpet quite a lot people have to realise that the basis of that war was was was, was communism against the Christian, uh, the Christian countries. Because Croatia, obviously, is a Catholic country. Italy is a Catholic country. Uh, Germany, as I said, was, was a Christian country. Many, many of these countries were Christian countries in fear of, of, of going under this, this uh, Soviet rule. And again, a point that's often glossed over in the history books. We're in the middle of World War II, and there's propaganda being thrown around on all sides, as is always the case, and there are atrocities being committed on all sides, as is always the case with war. Um, but the question that's on so many people's lips and particularly when they a lot of people who I know who I would have pointed in the direction of your documentary have come back to me and said hang on a minute Dennis Wise 
is talking about the question of the Holocaust and concentration camps in Poland and Germany and that issue. And he's basically saying, look, it didn't really happen. But we all know, Dennis, don't we, that six million Jews were killed in the concentration camps and in World War II. And it was ethnic cleansing on a level that we have never seen before or since. Well, it's true what you said. We all know there were six million killed. Now, if I ask you how many uh, British soldiers were killed or how many American soldiers were killed or uh, how many uh, French soldiers were killed, you couldn't tell me. Well, you can tell me there were six million Jews killed. And there's a reason for that, because that's been uh, a, ca a campaign now since, uh, since Stalin first came out with the propaganda saying that... Uh, uh, the discovered camps in Eastern Europe with, uh, were actually uh, showers as gas chambers. Uh, and at the time also, the Americans also fed into that and said that they also found gas chambers in, in the Western camps, uh, which, which Germany had built. Uh, now we know, and is official, that every camp that has, has been investigated in the West has proven now that there was no gassings. Uh, and the only camps what say there were gassings are in the Eastern Bloc, which are never allowed investigation. Now, uh, the best way to get, in my eyes, is to get to the bottom of this, and there's not just me in this world who, who, who thinks like I do, but the best way, rather than argue the point, is let's have a neutral and, uh, investigation and let's get to the bottom of it. Well, the only people stopping this investigation are the people who say that it happened, and they'll give various reasons, which... You know, don't really come up to, in my eyes anyway, come up to scratch. Let's, let's get this out of the way, but no, they won't allow investigations. And not only that, they'll bring a law out now in, in different parts of Europe, especially in Germany and in France and, and uh, Holland, m many other places, where if you even mention, you mention that there was no Holocaust, you face time in prison. So now for the first time ever for an event in history, if I were to say to you, look, I don't believe the Romans ever actually came to Britain, and, and, and I got a jail sentence for it, that would certainly be peculiar. But this is exactly the case in, in, uh, in, in Europe now, whereas uh, if, if you deny the Holocaust, you're facing uh, a, a jail term. So what happened, what didn't happen, and how is it that the world believes that six million Jews were rounded into gas chambers and gassed to death? How can this not be the case? We all know that it happened. Well... I, I, I kind of put the question to the actual viewer who, who watched the documentary and uh, make, make your own mind up and then uh, there's various ways that things are explained. For instance, there was a, a wonderful documentary by uh, David Cole who was a, uh, a Jew himself. Uh, a wonderful documentary of Cole in Irish, which, which can still be seen up on the internet where he goes through everything to explain. Uh, th there's no actual factual evidence to actually provide it. The only thing that, that we have is eyewitness reports from people who had a grudge. There's never ever been one autopsy or one single body of, 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 of a, a, a gas prisoner. Uh, okay, there's mountains of shoes when you visit Auschwitz and there's mountains of hair. Well, as I explained in the documentary, everybody had their hair shaven because lice was rampant. Uh, typhus, which lice causes, is known as the war disease. So, uh, why shouldn't there be mountains of hair, uh, mountains of shoes? Why shouldn't there be mountains of shoes? Every, every prisoner was given a uniform. So there were bound to be uh, mountains of shoes and, uh, and, and clothes. But uh, as far as hard evidence, uh, you're really struggling to find some. Now, nobody's said, not saying that the Jews hadn't been mistreated or uh, even killed. But if... We go 
down history saying that they were systematically killed by gassings, uh, in my eyes and many others, it's yet to be proven. I've mentioned language before. There's a very interesting difference that I've noticed in language with regard to, for example, the way camps in Germany and Poland and the Third Reich were treated and Allied camps. There's a concentration camp on one side and there's a prisoner of war camp on the other side. What's the difference, Dennis, as you would see it? Let's get things right. I'm not saying that the, that the camps in Germany were butlins, but certainly there were nothing to the gulags, what, what, what Stalin had. And in the documentary, it also has Jews who actually had time in Auschwitz and, and, and other camps uh, in the German so-called concentration camps, explaining how things were there, which, which is never seen in, in, in the mainstream media. These Jews explain, for instance, uh, they had orchestras in Auschwitz, um, music was uh, av av available to, 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 to practice and play. Uh, they also had uh, theatre theater shows and plays for the, uh, for the uh, children uh, in, in various other camps as well. Uh, also, you could, they, were they, they could write home, they could receive money uh, as well. Uh, and they even had a canteen where they could spend this, this money and, and, and buy wheat beer. Uh, so, it's certainly not the, the gulag where you work to death uh, clattering rocks for the rest of your life, all hours of day and night. Uh, Auschwitz, for instance, although Auschwitz feels claim, it is a fire reservoir, it is obviously a swimming pool. It's photographed again on, on the documentary showing this uh, with diving boards, etc. And the, the, the thing is that the, the Stalin's troops and, and According to the Auschwitz, in the David Cole uh, documentary, the Auschwitz, uh, the guy in charge there uh, admitted to David Cole in an interview that under Stalin's orders, uh, these uh, holes in the roof, which uh, the, the claim uh, that the cyanide was dropped uh, through to kill these, these people, uh, was put there by the Russians. And there's even a chimney which is even built which, after the war, which is not even attached to the building, uh, just, just to make it out more sinister. So all these things all, all come together, throw a huge doubt. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong if they, if, if they would allow investigations. Uh, let's, let's clear this up. But it's, I'm afraid it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Because uh, what the Holocaust brings is, is, is guilt and it brings finances uh, for Israel. And what of the presence of Zyklon B then, which has been found in places such as Auschwitz? How can that sure. be there? I mean, if, if the Jews weren't gassed, how is that present? Well, the, the again, uh, the lice, which, which causes typhus, uh, this, this was the only known thing to the Germans, at least. I know the Americans came out with uh, another chemical uh, because there was an outbreak of typhus in Sicily, which was uh, which was saved by, by, by the use of, of, of their chemical. But this particularly uh, gas, this, this uh, cyclone B, uh, was the Germans' uh, means of, of, of killing the lice on the clothes. They'd take all the clothes and they'd shave all the heads of, of, of the people coming into the camp, uh, share them all down, and then these uh, clothes would be burnt and the cyclone B would be uh, put onto these clothes to, uh, to kill all the uh, insects and uh, eggs. Taking all that at face value then, where, Dennis, did the Jewish population of Europe disappear to post-World War II or during World War II? Well, there's a question mark on how many Jews at the time there was anyway, but uh, 
the Jews in Germany certainly again a myth is that there was there was kicked out of Germany with no belongings and with just the, the clothes on the back. But again, uh, truth tends to seep out. And in the nineteen eighties, uh, as shown in the documentary, uh, it brought there was a an agreement between the Zionists in Germany and uh, uh, Hitler with the National Socialism, where because of this uh, blockade which uh, international Jews had put on Germany. Hitler wanted rid of that and he did a deal with the Zionists to send, because uh, they wanted Jews to uh, settle in uh, Palestine, which they got after World War I. Uh, they wanted Jews to settle there. So he said, OK, we'll send uh, as many Jews there as we can. That solves our problem. We're getting rid of a certain element that we don't really require or, or want. Uh, and if, if you can break this blockade, they agreed. Uh, and so consequently, they sent these uh, Germans with all the belongings, with all the money. Uh, and again, the documentary uh, documents all this as well. So uh, there is that element. But the other element is, is, of course, is what people don't know as well, is that Stalin brought a, a, a law out uh, to say that there was no prisoners of war. He didn't, he didn't consider any Russian soldiers who was captured or surrendered, excuse me, as, as a prisoner of war, uh, only a traitor. So, uh, at the end of the day, when uh, the Russians came into the camps, they, uh, the Russians w would have been cheering and uh, prisoners would have been cheering, here, here come uh, our army, and then this army would arrest them all, send them to another camp for interrogation, and then send them off to the Gulags. And uh, estimated two million of these so-called prisoners of war, as many of which would have been Jewish, were sent to the Gulag. And uh, again, it is explained and documented in the documentary. So, irrespective of um, what did or didn't go on inside German camps, there is no doubt that the Jewish population in Europe was dramatically reduced by a number of other factors. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, and, and don't forget, you know, a lot of Jews did leave uh, Germany. Uh, for instance, there's a, there's a little bonus feature there uh, which explains uh, Berlin at the time, because Berlin mm. was the, the, the centre of... Uh, decadence of Europe, it was taken over from Paris, uh, the, as I explained earlier, there was paedophilia, uh, prostitution, child prostitution, uh, every known sexual uh, habit could be bought uh, for less than ten dollars. Uh, and Hitler uh, cleared all, all of that out, and the people like uh, Marlene Dietrich, who was a uh, bisexual, and many others, uh, homosexuals, left knowing that this wasn't going to be the place anymore. It should, it should then a lot of sex clubs and bars. And, and uh, it's obviously at that time, Berlin wasn't fit for family life. Uh, and Hitler, like I said, turned it into a place where family families could walk down the street safely. Again, crime dropped dramatically. Uh, but these these people left for, many left for America uh, and, and reside in Hollywood and, and Los Angeles today, or at least their uh, descendants. And there can be no doubt that family was very much at the heart of Hitler's ideology with regard to the Third Reich and what it should be about from the German perspective. But one of the issues that's often brought up is the indoctrination of the youth through Hitler Youth and how young people were um, indoctrinated, to use the term again, into the Third Reich way of thinking. How do you address that in the documentary? Well, people say it, it was... A indoctrination but really the reason that the German people uh, 
believed in Adolf Hitler right to the bitter end was the fact that he, he alerted uh, the people to, to, to the problems uh, of the Soviet Union, of, of the banks. Uh, so everybody was totally uh, aware of the situation, which, which was why they were so loyal to him. Uh, and now you can call it indoctrination, but he felt that he brought the country to a certain position and he wanted the youth to inherit this position. And by doing that, he would instruct them and, and, and have them taught the actual facts uh, and the, of why Germany had progressed uh, and why they needed the armies against communism, etc. But I suppose the argument is there that they were indoctrinated, but I tend to look at it like they were informed. Okay, and I suppose it could be argued as well that there is a form of indoctrination takes place in any kind of society, be it Roman society, Western society. If somebody goes to a state school in the US now or anywhere around the world, there is a form of indoctrination and there is a line of learning that people must take to succeed within that system. So I don't, yeah, I don't personally not. think there's any major difference there. No, well, a lot, a, a lot of things like, like that do come to play. And uh, unless you're uh, thinking outside the box, you don't, you don't tend to realise it. Uh, you tend to accept that uh, the Hit Hitler's youth was indoctrinated and, and would go over the wall no matter what, because they were like, if you like, hypnotised. But I really don't believe that was the case. I just, I just believe that they, they looked at him uh, as a saviour and uh, listened to his every word. There's somebody that we haven't discussed much, and I think we should at this point, because he is central to the ending of the war and what happened. And that, of course, is Roosevelt and the U.S. post-Pearl Harbor. What happened to drag the U.S. into the war and the difference that that made, and I suppose how that has subsequently shaped world history ever since. Yeah, uh, this, this, is, this is another thing which is often overlooked, uh, Roosevelt's part in it. Uh, now... Obviously, Churchill had gone to Roosevelt and, and, uh, and asked for help. And certainly, although America at the time was a neutral country, uh, the actions that America came with was far from neutral. Uh, for instance, uh, it gave Britain uh, 50 destroyers in, uh, in exchange for bases in the Caribbean. Uh, there was financial aid in, in, the, in the billions to Britain and also the help of rearming. He also allowed... American pilots to fly in the British Air Force. Uh, all these things brought this uh, neutrality uh, agreement which America had been signed to. Uh, many people, and I've, I am also one of them, uh, believe that uh, he knew exactly what was going on in the Soviet Union because uh, in 1930, I um, can't remember quite the year, but in the 1930s, uh, they signed an agreement with the uh, Bolsheviks that they would uh, finance all the building, etc., which was going on in, in the Soviet Union. The last thing that Roosevelt wanted, because they were also in a depression, if you can remember, uh, was Germany conquering the uh, Soviet Union, because that meant a lot of bankers and a lot of finance people weren't going to make the money that they expected to. So all the time, Roosevelt is pushing to get into the war, but he can't get into the war at the moment because... Uh, the American population uh, believe it is an American, uh, sorry, it is a European civil war and don't really want anything to do with it, uh, especially after World War I. Uh, and so uh, the, the Poles all the time are, are sending signals to Roosevelt, we don't want to go to war. Uh, now, Pearl Harbor was the turning point on that one. 
And as it shows in the documentary, it wasn't really the surprise that everybody thought it was. And there's been more information come out since as well. But certainly in the documentary, it shows uh, newspaper headlines of only a few days before. We can expect an attack from Japan, uh, be ready for war. Uh, and when Roosevelt, when uh, Pearl Harbor finally happened, Roosevelt gave the impression that it was a total surprise. But since then, uh, in the archives, we found out that Australia warned them, Britain warned them, uh, that the, the Japanese fleet was heading their way, plus America had already brought on the Japanese code. So everything tells me and many others that Roosevelt uh, sacrificed Pearl Harbor uh, just to get into the war because he knew as soon as that happened and, and the American people would be up in arms uh, and if he could get a war with Japan who was allied to Germany then it would take a miracle then to send troops to Europe as it happened Hitler uh, who, as I said sided with Japan uh, decided to de declare war on America anyway because he knew all this time uh, since before uh, the war with the UK started that uh, uh, Roosevelt was sending help to the UK with information of where German U-boats was. They were actually uh, freezing funds in Germany, they were freezing the funds of, of Japan. All this was going on covertly, uh, which the public never knew about. Uh, and what was the simple reason Roosevelt needed to get into the war, wanted to get into the war. A lot happened then when he did eventually manage to get himself into the war. Let's talk about that for a little while, Dennis. Well, don't forget, he used to call Stalin, and as we've already discussed this, Stalin is probably the, the mass killer of all time. He used to call Stalin Uncle Joe, mm. uh, and never got into any arguments with him, and even when Churchill uh, would whinge about him uh, doing certain things, Roosevelt would always play it down. But yeah, uh, the Americans, most of the time anyway, most of the time sent uh, financial and uh, military aid to the Soviet Union, actually aiding the communism, uh, which, which sustained the Soviet Union. I'm quite confident that the German, the German army would have defeated the Soviets by 1942 if it weren't for this uh, help of uh, financial aid. And plus the fact that uh, at some point Stalin would have known that uh, the UK and the US were coming into the war, which would have made a defeat more bearable. Uh, psychologically, mm. uh, which was the case. I mean, I think the Germans have eventually probably killed around about 20, 20 million of, the, of these Soviets, but such was the manpower that it, that was only a dent. Uh, if, if the Germans lost a, a quarter of a million in a battle, that was far more of a dent in the German army than certainly in the Soviet army. It is documented that US aid helped to re-equip that Soviet army because the Soviets had an almost infinite supply of manpower but where they did fall down of course was on the financial side of things and they had severe difficulty and it did appear that they were about to lose the war due to the fact that the German policy of Blitzkrieg had annihilated their physical assets as opposed to their manpower so that's why I think and it's, it's made very clear in the documentary that's why Russia was able to come back and come back and come back again. It wasn't just because they had such a huge population. It's because they were able to re-equip that population. And that, I mean that army population. Sure. I mean, you know, we can't take anything away from, 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 from the Russian soldier. I mean, the Russian soldier was a tough soldier. Uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, they, they were hardened. But without that financial aid from America and that hope that America was always going to come in, uh, open up a Western front, uh, obviously kept, kept Stalin going. 
at a time when uh, at one point he had a, a, a breakdown or rumoured to have a breakdown of a thing we know now he did. Uh, such was uh, the, the state the Soviet Union was in with this unbelievable fast-moving army which was closing in on him. When did it really come to a crux for Hitler and the Germans? When did they realise that the tide had turned, that they were being overwhelmed and that the game was up, I suppose? Well, there's a couple of points. I mean, uh, he had something like 30 armies, did Stalin, and, and uh, when, when Germany took Minsk at one point, you know, they captured four of them armies. But when you know the size, was, you know, it really wasn't much of a dent. Mm. Uh, by the time they got to, uh, to Moscow, uh, nobody really gave the Soviets much of a chance uh, because of the way the Germans are just blistering all the way through. But the winter had set in, uh, and uh, they weren't equipped uh, with winter clothes. Uh, Hitler had hoped to, and the Blitzkrieg would have uh, uh, taken over by then. Uh, and so the Soviets, because Japan wouldn't attack from, from the east, they had a treaty with uh, the Soviet Union, and Japan, believe it or not, were a country of the word, uh, refused to attack from the east. So he could bring over... Uh, extra armies from from that section to bolster up Moscow and counterattack, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, and although the German army was solid uh, for for the most part on on, on the flanks, they had uh, some of their allies, which, which fell quite easily to this this counteraction. Uh, and so Moscow, although was uh, let's say a setback for Germany, wasn't a total setback because. Uh, most of the troops managed, managed to get out, but uh, certainly uh, they lost a lot of equipment, uh, which is a minor setback as well. So uh, for the first time after six months of these catastrophic defeats, uh, the Russians have uh, actually won a battle. So it's a major psychological, uh, but uh, there, was, there was other battles as well to take into consideration. Stalingrad was one where... Uh, the Germans had Presley took the city and they took nine-tenths of that city. But again, uh, the, the Russians managed to turn that one round, uh, encircle the German army uh, and capture them. And something like 90,000 of Hitler's best troops were sent to the Gulags. Uh, another one was uh, probably one of the last major battles when Hitler probably knew he had, he had a problem it was the Battle of Kursk and one of the biggest, well, the biggest tank battle in history mm. where, uh, again, the German losses were something like 200,000, the Soviet losses were 800,000, but the Germans just couldn't do what they wanted to do and had to retreat. Uh, after that, shortly after that, uh, the Americans opened up the Western Front, so now Hitler had to release troops from the east to go fight on the west which made things worse the accusation is often leveled at hitler that his megalomanic ways and his thirst for power in russia and fighting of course on two fronts is what led to the defeat and the uh, i suppose the delays um, he he should have taken his time and he shouldn't have gone in with the russian winter impending in the way he did how do you address that in the documentary because i found that very very interesting well the fact that it, that it was held up for six weeks on, on the initial invasion uh, because he had to go into, uh, in, into Greece and, and even the Middle East and, and the Balkans because he didn't want uh, any, any, any fighting behind him as he's going into, he wants the way clear mm. just to look straight ahead. Uh, so it took him six weeks to clear out the Balkans and Greece uh, and so that was six weeks obviously lost. Uh, 
uh, by the time they got to Moscow, the, the snow was started to fall, and and, and the trucks and, and the blitzkrieg had sl- slowed down. So that that's time was against him. I think he always knew that the uh, Americans were always going to come in at some point, and I think he felt that he had to take the Soviet Union by at least 1942, which uh, he didn't manage to do. Uh, they had to suffer uh, a winter, but then again, the campaign was starting up in 1943. Uh, so there was always these time restrictions, and, and, and people think, uh, why go into Russia because of uh, Napoleon had done it and he'd suffered. But as we mentioned earlier, again, he knew that the Russians were coming anyway and, and, and felt that the first punch was vital. So, you know, uh, once you get to know all these things and, and, and find out all these things, it's quite, it's, it's quite easy to work out that he has to do things even when he didn't want to. He was forced, his, his, his hand was forced. The slant that is quite often put on it is that, um, well, Hitler just wanted to totally take over the Soviet Union and defeat Stalin for the sake of defeating Stalin taking over the land but it is important to note that there is always uh, a context to that which is rarely rarely mentioned and which you have described there and gone into in even greater depth in the documentary a lot of people as well with regard to the fighting on the eastern front will talk about the German policy or the, the hunger plan and the supposed program to reduce the eastern European population through hunger and the uh, the protection to Soviet prisoners of war that should have been offered under the Geneva Conventions that wasn't. Let's have a little look at that for a while because much is often made of the treatment of prisoners of war that the Germans captured, but very little is mentioned of how German prisoners and Axis prisoners were treated on the other side as well. So is it that there was a a horrific balance on both sides due to the very nature of war? Or were there these so-called hunger plans in place and these, uh, these, these more, even more horrific ideas that were policy on either side? Well, people have to realise, and, and uh, Hitler warned his generals, of course, uh, that it was a, a war of uh, ideology, uh, the worst kind of war. This isn't a war against France or UK or Mexico territory. This is an ideology war. With, uh, it's a fight to the death. Um, and so, consequently, we can look back now and, and, and look at the uh, the prisoners of, of America and the UK who were uh, treated under the rules of Geneva Convention. I think 99% of American prisoners uh, all, all returned back to the UK healthy, uh, as, uh, as did many of, of, of the British. Uh, but with the Soviets, it was a different, different thing altogether because the Soviets refused to sign the Geneva Convention and, and uh, treated any captured German... Uh, Heinously, uh, it's probably the word. Uh, if if there was a, a German captured, uh, he would have his eyes gouged out and his testicles uh, cut off and, and, and opened up from chest to stomach, uh, simply because they didn't adhere to these uh, Geneva Conventions. And so Hitler refused to give them any kind of the treatment that he gave the Western Allies. Uh, and some may criticise that, but. In one way, you know, you can totally understand it uh, when, when, when your young troops are getting, not getting the uh, rules of, G- of Geneva uh, handed to them and, and looked after instead of getting uh, mercilessly uh, killed and, and tortured. He's probably left with no other option in my eyes. What was the attitude of the German people at this point when the tide was turning in the war? Was Hitler's popularity dented? Did people kind of turn on Adolf Hitler and did they say, hang on, hang on a minute, this isn't the promised land, our Messiah hasn't delivered? Or did he remain steadfastly popular to the end? Well, the thing was, uh, 
all this time that the Soviets had turned the war and was coming towards Germany and through Poland, etc., you've got to remember, of course, that the uh, incessant bombing of, uh, of Germany by the Allies. Yeah. There's, there's a feature in the uh, documentary which explains uh, at first the American uh, thought was just to bomb the uh, installations, industries and factories during the day, and the, but the British would target the population at night, the working class uh, closely knit houses at night, which in itself is a war crime. Uh, so all, all this all this is going on while these uh, troops are fighting on, on in, uh, the Soviets on the Eastern Front. Uh, Churchill and uh, Bomber Harris of the RAF were, were under the uh, impression that they could uh, blitz the civilian population to a point where we, they would revolt against uh, Adolf Hitler, which which never happened. Uh, firebombed most of the cities, Dresden, uh, Berlin and Hamburg and many others, uh, causing millions of refugees and, mil and millions of deaths. Uh, but not once did uh, they, they turn against the Third Reich. But that, again, is, as I said a little bit earlier on, they knew exactly the situation. Uh, as did Hitler, of course, because Hitler said he would never surrender, and we'll find out why probably a little bit later on in this conversation. Yeah, so let's try and find out why. Let's broach that issue now. Well, uh, it is my belief today that we are heading uh, to a one-world government uh, which is communist-driven. And I always felt that uh, the Allies aided communism in the uh, uh, Second World War. But as, as these uh, Soviets were coming in, uh, the, nothing was going to stop Stalin from, from uh, invading Germany. Uh, even though there were some of uh, Hitler's officers hoped that they could get rid of Hitler and then do a deal with the West. Uh, maybe they could stop Stalin from coming. So that was one, uh, one particular... Uh, Avenue they tried but was unsuccessful. Uh, Hitler survived the assassination. But uh, as far as uh, once the war was over and the troops uh, surrendered, a lot of the uh, Axis troops, uh, especially in Croatia and the Cossacks, uh, strove to get to the western side because they knew there would be no mercy from the Bolsheviks. Mm. Uh, and so the, the, a mention of the Blueberg massacre in Austria where the Croatians something like 300,000 Croatians surrendered and the families with them, they threw down their arms hoping that uh, they'd, they'd be sent uh, safely to, to Italy. Instead, they were tricked onto trains uh, by the British and sent back to uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, the uh, partisans there and uh, Tito was one of Stalin's uh, aides and a lot were murdered, well, most were murdered and uh, others were sent to, uh, to camps. So, uh, that's, that's one point. Uh, so even when they surrendered, they're not getting fair treatment. Uh, and then after the war, Eisenhower, uh, another little-known war secret, Eisenhower put all the Germans in the camp and, and classed every German citizen as a prisoner. Uh, so there were civilians in these camps as well. Uh, and he just made a fence, put a fence in the fields, and uh, put these hundreds of thousands of, of Germans in a field with no shelter, no food, no water, instructions for the civilian population that if any attempt to feed these soldiers, they would be classed as aiding the enemy and they will be shot, and some were shot. And it shows us in the documentary that uh, they were kept in a field where uh, they had to drink their own urine, uh, the weather, in no shelter from, from the weather, from the rain, uh, they had to dig 
rat foxholes or rabbit holes to get any kind of shelter, which was unknown. This, this was all unknown to, to, to Europe. Uh, and it only came out again in the 80s, possibly the 90s. Uh, a huge, a huge war crime. And it was estimated between 1.5 million German soldiers, or between 1.5 and 2 million German soldiers, died of starvation and mistreatment in these camps, uh, mainly on the Rhineland. And next to the Rhine. Uh, and you've got to remember this time, of course, uh, the, the, war, <coughs> the war trials were going on at Nuremberg. The Nuremberg trials were essentially a show trial. They couldn't have been anything but biased when you look at the makeup of uh, what they actually were. So tell us a little bit about that, because most people, while they're aware of the Nuremberg trials, they're not really aware of what actually went on there. No, well, for the first time ever, you've got to remember as well, this is the first time ever in history that an opposing side uh, has, has been uh, accountable for uh, what was classed as war crimes. I mean, take, for instance, the American Civil War. I mean, the soldiers there in the South, they fought the war, they'd lost and they got sent back home. And this was the, the case in every single war right up to this point. Yes. But, but the Allies wanted to uh, put uh, the German leadership on trial. And the reason for that was, it's like I said to you, this was a war of ideology. And uh, when, when you take a step back and look at the Nuremberg trials, this was just an, uh, an official way of uh, annihilating National Socialism uh, and any any mention of it. So uh, you've got to remember they had uh, French judges, they had uh, American and British and Soviets. Now the Soviets, when they entered Germany, raped something like two million women. Uh, again, a secret kept away from people. Uh, multiple war crimes there. They raped and murdered them, uh, nailed them to kitchen tables, barn doors. Horrific crimes. Uh, the bombing, firebombing of Dresden, the firebombing of Hamburg, mm. and the killing, the purpose killing of civilians by both the Americans, and the Americans uh, later on, as it shows in the uh, documentary, changed tactics and also started bombing civilians. And, that, and let's not forget the two nuclear bombs that they dropped on Japan um, on the civilian population can all be classed as war crimes. So you've got these judges at Nuremberg now who are bringing to evidence. Uh, what they considered war crimes as uh, mainly uh, the, the uh, killing of Jews and prisoners in these camps by gassings. Uh, and, and, and to be quite honest, when you watch footage from the uh, uh, Nuremberg trials, the, the uh, National Socialist leadership are quite stunned at, at what they're being shown because they didn't know what was going on in these camps. And they were shown the piled up bodies of the people who had either starved at the end of the war uh, because of the incessant bombings and broken down all the transport system and um, very little food was getting through to the camps. Typhus had broken out. And for instance, Berg and Belsen, the British arrived and for, for a month after at least, there were still 500 a day still dying uh, from, from typhus and starvation. All, all this is, is, is documented. Uh, it was found out that there was no gas chambers there neither. So these, these Germans were, 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 were on trial, uh, but not only on trial, they, they were uh, to be shown to the world as criminals. Uh, and by that I mean like, instead of being uh, every soldier wishes to be shot, or if you're going to be in front of a, a firing squad, uh, that is the way of a soldier dies, all requests were turned down and it had to be by hanging, which is the way the death of a criminal. And the same thing happened to Saddam Hussein who also requested a soldier death and he was refused. Because it's to show the world, give an illusion of, of, of this, uh, these are criminals, 
and they have to be hung. So consequently, uh, the betting would have been at the time like there wouldn't have been that many uh, left to survive. And certainly, uh, most were sentenced to death, and, and the rest were given long life sentences. Uh, and it was just a, a way of annihilating this ideology of national socialism. Uh, all books and uh, were, were removed from Germany. All school teachers who, who, who taught the curriculum of uh, national socialism were removed. Uh, the education system was taken over, the media was taken over, uh, and uh, there was a big drive to clear out everything about national socialism. And obviously, you know, uh, the fact that they removed the bankers and everybody else, all that was hidden from history as well. So uh, we, we get to Nuremberg trials, and uh, uh, this, this great sham now uh, goes into uh, a machine of, of hanging people. And again, the documentary shows uh, how botched up the hangings were. Some hangings took 20 minutes for a person to die. And so they called for uh, England's top hangman, uh, which was Pierpoint. Albert Pierpoint came over and uh, multiple, multiple sets of hangings of women and of uh, uh, men uh, to, to, to a point uh, where it was just really sickening to watch. But such is, such is war and uh, no one likes to see... Uh, these things, uh, especially women being hung, uh, but eventually they did clear out uh, the leadership of National Socialism, which is what that was intended. And one of the interesting things about the clear out is that not everybody was put on trial at Nuremberg because there was a massive uh, brain drain and technology drain of the um, National Socialist leadership that was brought to allied countries, most particularly the US. Um, people often talk about Operation Paperclip and how so many Nazi scientists were brought to the US and their, um, I suppose, their, their theories and their technological superiority was then used by the US to further their economy and their yeah. needs. So what about Operation Paperclip? What, why were some of the Nazis let off the hook. I mean, surely that would lend more credence to the theory that Nuremberg was simply a show trial. It wasn't about justice. It wasn't about fairness or equality. Those that were dispensable or disposable or of no use to the Allies were put to death. And those that were, were taken and uh, put in high positions in their various fields. All, all the Allies knew about the technology of the, of the excuse me, of the Germans, uh, the rockets, etc. And the, uh, in fact, it shows on documentary, uh, one of the first jet planes flashing past a Allied uh, aeroplane at 150 miles faster than they could fly. So there was a, a lot of technology. Again, for a country which was only uh, 12 years old and six of those years were at war, was an incredible achievement in uh, in science, medicine, and and uh, rightly so, the military weapons, which the Allies wanted to get their hands on. That. The Soviets wanted to get their hands on it, and they plundered all the machinery in the factories. As, as they could, but the Americans managed to get the scientists. Uh, and obviously, uh, a lot is made of that today. Uh, people saying like that these, uh, what's going on today uh, came from Operation Paperclip, where the Nazis now uh, run the world via uh, the American government, which nothing could be further from the truth, because uh, these, these national sources were wiped out. Apart from these scientists who were given the choice, uh, yeah, you've got three choices, you come to, come, come to America and, and, and live uh, a, a good life of luxury. Uh, we'll look after you if you can give us all your technology, or you can be uh, taken by Stalin and, and live in communist Soviet Union, or you can be put to death uh, 
and the Nuremberg trials. It doesn't really take a genius which one they're going to choose, mm. uh, and they chose to come to America. And to be fair, they were looked after, uh, and they swapped their te their technology for, for for a better life. Uh, so again, I come to this uh, thing the other day where somebody was complaining about uh, the government in Britain the actions. Uh, claiming that it was a, a fascist government and uh, it's, it's quite easy to, 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 to tell a fascist government and a, and a communist government uh, obviously today uh, as earlier I feel that you know there is a communist agenda to it all whereas which is why this break up a family which all stems from the victories of World War Two uh, are, are trying to put together and, and lead us down uh, the, all this what I've just mentioned would not happen in a fascist society so people have got to realise that this is a left-wing agenda, even in America. And I think it's very interesting to look at the American situation now, because while the US is traditionally seen by the Western world as, I suppose, anti-leftist, it's all about language again, and language can disguise so much. If you listen to the rhetoric that comes from the US and from most of the West at this point, um, nobody would ever believe that there is any kind of leftist agenda. But if one actually looks at the actions and what's going on, it's patently obvious to any kind of neutral or open-minded observer. Yeah, it's a socialist agenda. And certainly, uh, uh, one instance I can go over here in Britain is that we all know it's a fact, it's a historical fact. There's no argument that the communist system has, has killed more, more people in history than, than any other ideology. And yet we have a communist party in Great Britain. Why? You know, these, these things are, 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 are overlooked. Uh, why did it, uh, when uh, communism collapsed uh, during the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, why did Britain bring out a law to say that uh, all the Germans could be tried for, uh, all the Germans committed war crimes, which, which allowed uh, people from the Soviet Union to come live in Britain and not fear prosecution? All this has got to lead you to the point where uh, there is a huge communist collaboration, if you like, from the West, uh, because there's really two sides of the same coin, capitalism and communism. Uh, there's an elitist in both. Uh, and uh, like you just said then, like, you know, the, the, it is a very much left-wing socialist agenda in America. Just to get back then to post-war Germany and the legacy of Adolf Hitler, quite often people will refer to Germany's shame and how the German psyche to this day has almost a block when it comes to that era of history and there's this national shame that everybody talks about. That doesn't just happen by accident because, let's face it, up to the end, Adolf Hitler was extremely popular within, within Germany. How did that change or what was the systematic... We all know that Germany was broken up then, but... but how was that systematically expunged from the national psyche? Well, uh, like I said, uh, little known to a lot of people, like in Germany, <coughs> all the uh, national socialists uh, was, were uh, soldiers that were, were either sent to the Soviet Union or, or they were uh, died in the camps, or a huge, a huge proportion of the male population perished. Uh, the rest of the country was, was in, in, indoctrinated as it shows on the documentary, the people who were led, led around the camps showing shrunken heads and, and uh, such things, which was all proven to be propaganda. Uh, tattooed skin, etc. Uh, was all was all propaganda from America uh, combined with the Soviet propaganda. So eventually it, it got to a point where the, the next generation of Germans were totally uh, convinced of the 
evilness of uh, National Socialism. To the point I was talking to an American the other day who, who told me about the time when he was at university and had a, a, a trip from uh, a German trip over and uh, he, him also feeling the same way as, as, as what I do about what happened in Germany. Uh, asked these Germans or said to these Germans, started talking about Hitler in a positive way uh, to their horror. Because when I uh, asked this uh, person how they reacted and he, he, he said that the reactions of the Germans was that they deserved it. They deserved the, the treatment that they got and, the, and the, they were rightfully shameful. So this indoctrination has obviously got through them. There's been laws brought out uh, to keep everybody in line. But in Britain, it's a, different, it's a different thing altogether. We don't need laws over here because the name Adolf Hitler has been so uh, demeaned and demonised that just to mention the name is like, a no-go area. You don't need to bring a lawyer because nobody wants to talk about Adolf Hitler. As soon as you mention Adolf Hitler, it's 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 just a look of horror and uh, enough said. Whereas uh, America, luckily, has a, a constitution which allows free speech. And uh, over there at the moment, there's there there seems to be quite a few over there who, who seem to be able to see exactly what the documentary uh, is telling them. And in terms of the documentary and the the information contained therein. How have you dealt since it came out, Dennis, with, um, I suppose, a personal response to it? I mean, I've seen cases where people would label you, for example, a neo-Nazi because you're showing a different view of history. A lot of people would say, well, it's extremely biased in favor of Adolf Hitler. And there, there must have been a certain amount of vitriol directed towards you personally. And it's a brave move to bring out something so paradigm shattering whether people take it on board or not that has to that has to be acknowledged so how have you found the response to the documentary well to be quite honest i've never i've never done a documentary change so many minds and such a i mean if somebody said to me uh before i started uh, could you make a documentary which could change people's minds on adolf hitler i would have certainly thought that was a task well that was a task what i tried to do without coming across bias by showing documented evidence and by showing uh, footage rare footage on film uh, and certainly uh, it's changed a lot of people's lives i've numerous hundreds of emails on, on how people just cannot believe how they've been fooled uh realize they have been fooled and are still being fooled today uh as i said earlier on right at the start then knowing the situation about world war ii is the key to opening the door of how things work today. Uh, I do believe that there is no particular point in voting because uh, we have uh, in both the UK and the US uh, Democrats and Republic uh, Republicans and uh, Conservatives and Labour. There's, there's no difference uh, and, and, and it proves it. So when, when Thatcher left, uh, I voted and that. I voted for the last time. I voted for Tony Blair. And uh, within a week, he was visiting Thatcher and was shaking hands. And he continued our policies and, and more. And same with uh, over in America, Obama uh, was thought to be the great uh, saviour. And he just continued, in fact, increased the wars uh, on what George Bush did. So it is, there, there are a shadow government. I mean, I may do a documentary one day and go more, more deeper into it. But there, there are shadow, shadow governments, uh, which uh, at this moment in time, I, I believe... Uh, monarchy in England, the secret societies in England combined with the banks and with Israel and with the, uh, the US, the, the, the shadow government in the US are all combined together to make uh, this one world order and there's only six, five or six countries left to, uh, to conquer. Syria was one of them but they didn't manage because of uh, Putin 
but certainly uh, the, the other countries like Iraq and, and, and Libya all fell uh, to this, to this uh, well, it, every, everybody can look back to World War because the winners of World War II, sorry, the, the winners of World War II descendants rule the world today. Uh, and once you understand that and you understand the, the left-wing ideology that they put into practice, everything starts to become clearer. And I think when it comes to contemporary control, one only needs to follow the money trail to see exactly um, who are pulling the strings at the top. And it goes far beyond government, I think. I, I fully agree with you on that. I think, as you say, shadow governments do exist and have been acknowledged in many, many cases now. And if somebody's looking for a quick way to find out who's really doing what in the world, the money trail can always be followed because we are a, we are a world that is largely controlled by money and by usury-based financial systems now. So uh, watch that and see what happens. So back to Hitler before we tie things up, Dennis. Um, your own personal view on Adolf Hitler. I mean, many people, of course, will have their own views, having seen the documentary or not, and many people, I'm sure, will be absolutely horrified at some of what's been said in, in, in our conversation today. But what's your own personal view on Adolf Hitler? I mean, is he the monster that we're told he was? Is he a victim of circumstance? Or is there just so much propaganda coming out from the side of the winners that we'll never really know about the real Adolf Hitler? What's your own personal take on it? Well, I think there's, there's a reason he's been demonised uh, every day of the week for 70 years, either through the media or through Hollywood uh, or education at school. Uh, simply that he was the one closest to bringing down this cabal of uh, shadow governments. Uh, and you look at Europe today and uh, how Europe has been uh, flooded by, by Muslims, and, and I don't blame the Muslims. I mean, uh, if, if I put a cat in with a dog in, in a cage, I blame the person who's put the cat in. And the people who have put the cat in, I think it's plainly obvious uh, in, the, in the documentary, the uh, lady eloquently uh, explains that Europe will not survive unless uh, they integrate. I have a uh, former president of France, uh, Scorsoni, actually saying that uh, if people don't integrate uh, by, uh, by themselves, we will bring out laws that will force integration. And this is the policy what they're doing at the moment, they're trying to destroy. And I'm not, I'm not a white supremacist, by the way, because uh, I do believe Hitler would never join the Ku Klux Klan, but I do believe there is a, a mission to destroy the white race in Europe by, by breeding them out, by letting these uh, Muslims in, uh, and also uh, in, in America. Uh, it's just this breakdown of the family, it's the breakdown of nationalism. If, if you, over a period of time, uh, break down, uh, say, like, uh, you know, English race, the proud English race, or the, or the uh, proud French or German race, once you break down that, you get less resistance to anything you're going to bring in, because people start to become individual and, and, and not as a clan. So and that is the present situation. Well, however they package it, that is what's going on in Europe. And Hitler was the last of, of, of those who fought against, and they warned against it, uh, and, and it's all coming to fruition now. For those who haven't seen the documentary, it is six hours long. It's broken down into parts, and it can be found as well online in um, in a single documentary form that, that combines the parts. And it's, it's absolutely riveting, it's absolutely fascinating, and it is paradigm-shattering for anybody who cares to approach it with an open mind, in my opinion. 
I am the best. The best way to actually view it because there are certain versions up on up on because it got banned from YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> surprisingly. Surprise, surprise. Uh, uh, and it's shown in in in, in uh, only fractions, but the, but the complete version is is at the official website, which is uh, the greatest story uh, never told. TV. Fantastic. Well, what's on the agenda then for you, Dennis, in terms of any follow-ups? Well, I would like to, to follow up because, like I said, once, once we know the story of World War Two and the truth and, and what's happening today, I would like to go into uh, the situation today, what people aren't aware of, and, and, and the agenda of these elites and, uh, and these secret societies, which, of course, again, Kennedy was one that spoke openly about the secret societies. And when you think uh, it wasn't long after he was assassinated, and today we have people like George Bush and, and Curry who openly admit they're from secret societies, these people have now took over America. Uh, you can plainly see which way we're going. I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Dennis Wise, it's been great talking to you on Alchemy Radio today. Thank you for joining me. Great being here, thank you. Cheers, John. Alchemy Radio.
hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on your donations and every little helps and will go a long way towards keeping us afloat. The donate button is on the website, as is our brand new subscription button, which you can also use for credit cards. So if you don't have a PayPal account, you're now facilitated. And thank you very much for all your support and assistance. Our next guest is Mitch Horowitz, a US author who will be talking about his book, One Simple Idea, A Guide to Positive Thinking. So until then, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze.